Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, we're going to start reading in verse number 26. Luke 23, 26. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one, of course, in the chair in front of you, which is the same version I'll be reading from. Verse 26, now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father God, we're so thankful for the word of God, and we're so thankful for the stories that we see here telling us what took place on the cross. I pray this morning as we look at this passage, oh Lord, you speak to our hearts. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, today to boldly proclaim what you once said. Help me also today to be protected from saying anything I should not. I pray for your word to go forth, and I pray that it would be accepted as such, and I pray, Lord, that hearts would be uh, improved and changed and Lord, saved if need be. I pray that we all would get just exactly what we need from your word today. Speak to us today from this wonderful prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you in his name. Amen. Jesus was crucified on a Friday about 9 o'clock in the morning. And he remained on the cross until... Three o'clock in the afternoon. During the time that he was on that cross, we know of seven specific things that he said from the cross. I suppose it's possible he said more, but the Holy Spirit has seen fit to tell us of seven things. That's what's recorded in the Bible. The first is what we read right here today in verse number 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second is in verse number 43 of the same chapter, when he said to the thief today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? The third is in John chapter 19 when he said to John and to Mary, Behold your mother, woman, behold your son. The fourth is in Matthew 27 when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fifth is in John chapter 19 when he said, I thirst. The sixth, John chapter 19 when he said, It is finished. And the final one in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Today I would like for us to look at just one of the seven words from the cross. And I want it to be that first one that we read about here today in verse number 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, like everything in the Bible, this, well, not everything in the Bible, I didn't mean to say that. Everything about what took place on the cross that we have recorded in the Bible. Like everything there, this verse is a fulfillment of prophecy. 
The latter part of verse 34, which we're not going to get into today, is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse number 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Fulfillment of prophecy. But the words Jesus spoke here, even the prayer that he said, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Any Jew who was there and heard Jesus pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Anyone who was there and familiar with the prophet Isaiah's words would have no doubt in their mind gone flying right back to chapter 53. Because hundreds of years earlier, that prophet had said, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53:12. So here he is being crucified between two thieves. And not just petty thieves at that. I think sometimes we minimize the meaning of that word, thieves. The word in the Greek indicates violence. These guys weren't just shoplifters. These were violent criminals. Here he is being crucified between them. And contrary to the way it is often depicted in art, there is no indication whatsoever in the Bible that Jesus' cross was any higher than theirs. I'm sure all the crosses were exactly the same height. Because he was crucified with them. He was crucified like them. He was crucified as one of them. And so truly he was numbered with the transgressors. As Isaiah said, a complete and total fulfillment of prophecy. And as he looked at all those who were involved in this greatest transgression that had ever taken place and ever would take place in the history of the world, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. And truly then, He made intercession for the transgressors, as Isaiah had said, and this too was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was ever the intercessor, ever praying for others. In John chapter 17, we have his great intercessory prayer where he prayed for his his own. He prayed for his disciples, and by extension, he prayed for you and for, for me. He said in John chapter 17, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse number 20, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. (laughs) That's you and me. He made intercession for us. And we know that Jesus' current ministry is one of intercession. He is right now making intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so here's Jesus. In our text today, doing what he ever did, making intercession, praying. In this case, though, it was for sinners that he prayed. I want us to notice two things this morning as we look at this. This passage of scripture, or at least this one verse, our text, verse 34, kind of outlines itself. There's two parts to it. The first part is the request. The second part is the reason. So let's look at those two things. First of all, the request, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I don't suppose it was abnormal at all to hear from someone who was being crucified. I imagine for someone being crucified to speak was not uncommon. Crying out in pain, screaming vitriol at their executioners, probably was something they regularly heard. Matthew Henry said one would think that he should have prayed, Father, consume them. The Lord look upon it and requite it. And the soldiers and onlookers had no doubt heard something like that before. 
But here they heard something different. Now they heard something from the lips of Jesus that they weren't used to hearing. They heard this, Father, forgive them. In the list of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, this appears first. The chronology in our Bible seems to indicate that it happened first. It seems to indicate that it actually probably happened while they were nailing him to the cross. While they were in the act of crucifying the Lord, he was saying this. As the nails pierced his flesh, these words escaped his lips. As the cross was raised and dropped into the ground, these were the words that hung in the air. Father, forgive them. And even though a cursory reading of scripture would make us think that he said it only one time, that's really not true. He actually said it over and over again. It's not easy to see in the English translation, but in the Greek in which the New Testament was originally written. Bear with me while I get technical for a second. It is in the imperfect tense, the imperfect active indicative tense. And the imperfect tense denotes continuous, ongoing, or repeated action in the past. Active means that the subject is the one doing it, and indicative means it is a fact. And so Jesus, the subject, was repeatedly saying, imperfect tense, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hence, some translators translate this verse as Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They laid him on the cross, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They stretched his arms along the cross, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They drove a nail into his right hand, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They drove one into his left hand, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They raised the cross into the air and thudded it into the hole in the ground, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. Get the picture in your mind this morning. All this terrible activity is taking place, and the sound that is heard over it all is Jesus. Repeatedly praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Well, I see some things in this request. I see in this prayer, for example, not only the fact of his forgiveness. Clearly, Jesus is one who forgives. From We see that here. But not only the fact of it, but also the depths of it. Think about this. He forgave them. Think about that. The ones who were driving nails into his flesh and killing him. Them. The rough soldiers who mocked and gambled for his clothing at the base of the cross. Them. He forgave them. The chief priests and scribes who had conspired together and condemned him to death. Them. That's the depths of his forgiveness. Spurgeon said, their hands were imbrued in his blood. And it was then, even then, that he prayed for them. Is there a place we can find in Scripture? I don't think there is. Where you'll get a greater picture of the depths of Christ's forgiveness. How can anybody think their sin is too great? How can anybody think that they are unforgivable when Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Matthew Henry said the greatest sinners may, through Christ, upon their repentance, hope to find mercy. Though they were his persecutors and murderers, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Oh, the depths of his forgiveness. Think about it. Father, forgive them. Any are included. All are included. All may be forgiven, even them. But not only here do we see the depths, I think also in this prayer we see the extent of his forgiveness. 
I hinted at it a little bit there, but let me be very plain right now, because I don't think he was just talking about them. I think he was also talking about you. And I think he was also talking about me. It's personal to each of us. He forgave them. He forgives us. I cannot improve. I know I quote from Spurgeon a lot, but I cannot improve upon his words here. Listen to his comments on this verse. He said, I love this prayer because of the indistinctness of it. It is, Father, forgive them. He does not say, Father, forgive the soldiers who have nailed me here. He includes them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive sinners in ages to come who will sin against me. But he means them. Jesus does not mention them by any accusing name. Father, forgive my enemies. Father, forgive my murderers. No, there is no word of accusation upon those dear lips. Father, forgive them. And into that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting it and get into that big little word, them. It seems like a chariot of mercy that has come down to earth into which a man may step and it shall bear him up to heaven. Father, forgive them. In another place, Spurgeon said, though we were not there and we did not actually put Jesus to death, yet we really caused his death. And we too crucified the Lord of glory. And his prayer for us was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We sing it all the time, don't we? We sing the Getty song all the time. How deep the Father's love for us. And it says this very same thing. Behold, the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Father, forgive them. Here is the extent of his forgiveness. It was extended to them. And it also reaches to you. We see some other things here. We see that in this prayer, Jesus practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. Back in Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Another place, Luke chapter 6, he said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. His practice in what he preached, was he not? As he prayed, Father, forgive them. It was a spirit of forgiveness that stuck with his disciples. They didn't forget it. Do you remember uh, Stephen, when Stephen was stoned? Do you remember the prayer that escaped Stephen's lips in Acts chapter 7 as he was dying? It says he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Father, forgive them, is and will ever be a characteristic of the Christian and the Christian faith. Christians forgive because they're forgiven. Christians forgive much because they're forgiven much. Christians forgive all because they are forgiven all. Father, forgive them is to be the level of our forgiveness one to another. Paul said to the Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not, do not curse. He said to the Corinthians, we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless 
being persecuted, we endure. Father, forgive them. Well, consider secondly the, the reason. That was the request. Consider the reason. The reason. We've probably all heard sermons on that prayer. Father, forgive them. It's not an uncommon thing. I've probably preached it many times before. But how often do we really think about the second part of the verse? The second part of the verse, I think we ignore a little bit too much. Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they do. They know not what they do. Now, from elsewhere in Scripture, we know this was literally true. They did not know what they were doing. We know that. The Bible says that. We have to believe it. They had no idea of the enormity of their crime. Paul said, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know. Peter said in his great sermon in Acts chapter 3, he said, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet, and listen to this part, yet, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. They didn't know. They didn't know. Now, some people might read this and they might come away with this thought. They might think that Jesus was excusing their behavior because of their ignorance. In other words, Jesus was saying, Father, you can't hold them guilty because they're ignorant of this. They don't know, so therefore you can't hold them guilty. But that introduces a problem into our minds, doesn't it? Because if Jesus, if ignorance was an excuse for their sin, why then would Jesus have to pray for their forgiveness? If there was no sin, why the need for forgiveness? Where there is no sin, there is no need to be forgiven. One man said their ignorance is not an excuse for their infamy, or Christ would not have needed to pray forgive them. Even those who did not know needed forgiveness. Ignorance may mitigate the criminality of sin, but it never exonerates it. Their ignorance did not make their sin excusable, but it meant that they themselves were forgivable. You see, God is perfectly just. He takes one's level of understanding into consideration in his judgment, but still ignorance does not excuse sin. It does not get a sinner completely off the hook. The servant who knew his master's will, Jesus said, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be, shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. They did not know, but that did not change the fact that they were guilty. They did not know, but that did not change the fact that they needed forgiveness. I could ask the young people on the front row here today, what would happen to you if you were sitting in class and uh, you discovered that your teacher had given you an assignment and you didn't hear about it? You didn't know about it, but it was due today. What would happen if you didn't turn it in? You'd still be in trouble, wouldn't you? Because you're supposed to know. You're expected to know. Likewise, I could ask any of the adults in the room, how many of you have tried when one of our finest state troopers pulls you over alongside of the road 
And you try things like, I didn't see that speed limit sign. Does that work? Or, I didn't understand what the law was there. Does that work? Don't ask me how I know those things don't work. (laughs) It doesn't work. You see, in a similar way, these people should have known. They should have known the enormity of what they were doing. They should have known what they did. They lived in a city where this man had healed the sick and raised the dead. They had heard him preach. They had seen his miracles. They had known him to do nothing but good. They had been immersed all of their lives in the teachings of the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And yet now here they were face to face with the Messiah himself. And they didn't recognize him. They should have known. But they did not. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But they should have. They had not taken advantage of the opportunities. They had not listened to the word that was preached to them, describing the coming Messiah. They had not paid attention when the Savior was in their very midst, preaching and teaching and healing and doing nothing but good things. They had squandered their opportunity, and now they did not know. They did not know. I want to share two applications that come to my mind as I think about these things. The request and the reason. Two applications come to my mind as I close. Number one, you need to get hold of the enormity of Christ's forgiveness for you. Because it is enormous. Let me share a story. I read this in another sermon. This man said, in May 2009, my family was in Azusa, California, because one of our kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. My wife, Nancy, was going to speak at the commencement ceremony, so she and I were invited to a special gathering of about, of about 50 people, people from the graduating class of 50 years ago and a few faculty members. During the gathering, John Wallace, the president of APU, brought out three students who were graduating that year and told us that for the next two years they were going to serve the poorest of the poor in India. These three students thought they were there just to be commissioned and sent out with a blessing, which they were. But then something happened that they did not know was coming. John turned to them and said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor who is so moved by what you're doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. John turned to the first student and said, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kid immediately started to cry. John turned to the next student. You're forgiven your debt of $70,000. And he then turned to the third student. You are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea this was coming. They were ambushed by grace, blown away that somebody they didn't even know would pay their debt. And the whole room was in tears. Jesus paid your debt. He paid your debt. Father, forgive them. He was including you in that prayer. You can have your entire debt forgiven and wiped out forever if you just accept the gift. Do you suppose that any one of those students at Azusa Pacific University said, Ah, you know what, I don't think so. I think I'll pay my own. We would have thought them ridiculous. And how much more ridiculous is it when some would say no to the offer of Jesus' forgiveness? How many would put it off for another day when you know he paid 
rescued that. The depths of Christ's forgiveness are such that it reaches to anybody. The extent of Christ's forgiveness is such that it reaches to you. But you have to receive it. Will you receive it? Application number two. You need to come to terms with this truth. Ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. There will be no day when you will stand before God and say, I did not know. It's not going to happen. Nor will there be a day when you stand at the judgment bar and say, I wasn't quite clear on a few things. You will not be able to plead ignorance when you stand before God. Because you have no excuse for your ignorance. You have been privileged to know the things of God. You have people praying for you. Some of you have had people praying for you for years. Some for decades. Many of you would be astonished to know how many times your name comes up in our midweek prayer meeting as your brothers and sisters pray for you by name. You have praying mothers and fathers. You have Bibles. We in America, so many of us have multiple copies of the scriptures in our homes. Too many ignore the enormity of the evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It swirls all about them, but yet they go merrily down their way, ignoring it. Having never made a decision for Christ. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. Call upon the Savior today. Pray. Pray. Pray, Father, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I receive him now as my Savior and Lord, repenting of my sin. And with your help, I will live for him from this moment on. Pray it. Pray it. Because ignorance is no excuse. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do.